Well, you know what I think. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to deny that. I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Please do not go religious. Somebody's going to hell over there. He better not. Even the devil will speak the truth for, for his own purposes. This is war. Accept it. Back to Jerusalem podcast. Yeah, I'm back and I'm armed with righteousness. With your host, Eugene Bach. He just seems like he's got it all figured out. He's a righteous dude. Yep. Hello and welcome to another Back to Jerusalem podcast. I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, and I'm coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Iraq. And today has been a, an amazing day because we have seen something that has made me quite excited as it has to do with the Back to Jerusalem prayer bears. If you've been following Back to Jerusalem for any amount of time at all, you will know that Back to Jerusalem has these prayer bears that represent the panda bear that we have in the Back to Jerusalem children's book series. And those prayer bears are made in Iraq. And we have a special lady that has joined us. She's in charge of making those prayer bears that we have sent all around the world. Her name is Barbara, and we are super excited to be with her today. Thank you, Barbara, for being with us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, I know that you didn't expect any of this. We asked you to come and join us for lunch today. We have our Back to Jerusalem tour group, which is like over 40 people. It's the most we've ever brought to Iraq before. And so I was intimidated. I was hoping that we didn't get any real big crazy people. Um, that's number one. Number two, if I could have a prayer answered, be like nobody that's that difficult. Because you always have these like prima donnas that need to have all the red M&Ms separated from the green M&Ms and they're not gonna stay in rooms that are above 77 degrees in temperature or whatever. But everybody here was super easy, very helpful. Uh, very easy to travel with. So I just, I thank God, you got to meet with them. They got to meet with you. We got to spend some time praying together. Um, and I was amazed. This is the first time you and I have met to hear your story. You got an amazing story. How long have you been in, let's back up. Can you just share a really quick kind of introduction to who you are for our audience? Um, my name is Barbara. I'm from Tennessee originally. I've been in Kurdistan. Well, I've lived in Kurdistan about four years. I started coming here in 2013, and my heart just stuck, so I stayed. I can. You can always tell somebody that lives in Kurdistan because they say, "I live in Kurdistan, not Iraq." Like I live in Kurdistan oh, yeah. because that's like a big deal, right? It is a big deal, and you do have to be careful because if you're outside of Kurdistan and you say Kurdistan, it causes trouble sometimes. But inside Kurdistan, they definitely prefer <laughs> that you use Kurdistan. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's 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 Iraq. It's a special, like a special administration. They have, a, they have some autonomy here, but they are very proud. And I mean, this is the only place that you can call Kurdistan. I mean, Turkey has Kurds. Mm -hmm. Iran has Kurds. Syria has Kurds. None of those places are called Kurdistan inside of Iran, Turkey, or Syria. Right. Here, the people, the Kurds have a little bit of autonomy. Yeah, they do. This, it is a semi-autonomous region, so they have their own government system. They have their own airport, and they're allowed to function as like Kurdistan. You have your stamp on your passport, passport yes, yeah. <laughs> but the visa, like it's from Kurdistan. Right. Okay. So, yeah. and anywhere else, like I was in Turkey and they asked from where I came and I said from Kurdistan, they were like, I'm sorry, there's no such thing. And I'm like, <laughs> but it says so on my passport. So yeah, like it's a political yes. issue, but yeah, there's a lot of autonomy in Iraqi Kurdistan. 
and even if you look on the map like it'll show like Kurdistan being in Turkey and Iran like it's drawn there's borders technically but they don't they aren't really allowed to function yeah, so it's well it's one of the biggest people groups in the world without their own yeah. nation. So uh, you got and they love Americans. I mean, yeah. if I try to travel to Iraq, I need a visa. Mm -hmm. But if I come to Kurdistan, which is technically in Iraq, I don't need a visa. Right. You get a visa on arrival like yeah. for 30 days when yeah. you come in. Yeah. And this is the first time I've ever paid for a visa on arrival. Did you have, I've never paid for a visa on arrival. I didn't even know guess. That. Guess how much I paid. Fifty dollars. Up. hundred. Seventy. Seventy dollars for a visa. I'm like, what? Since when? Since you brought in 40 people on the plane that can pay for a seventy dollar visa. So, yep. It looked like they put the desk up five minutes before we arrived there. So it wasn't even a real desk. So I'm not saying that you have to pay for a visa when you come to Kurdistan. I'm saying that we paid for a visa when we came into Kurdistan. It does a lot of times matter who's doing the stamping, what the rules are for sure. Everywhere it matters who's doing it, what the rules are. And I mean, there were there were times where, you know, for the first couple of years when I was traveling here in 2014, 15, I was probably here once every six weeks. I've never paid for a visa ever. And so that was the weirdest thing. And I was just here last year. Um, and again, you never paid for a visa. So when we come in and we're like 40 people deep, I think we took over most of the airplane. Um, I was wondering, why are we slowed up? Why aren't people lining up at the immigration desk? And I realized that they're collecting a fee. And I was thinking like 15 bucks, maybe 25 bucks at the most on a bad day, $50. But $70, didn't see that coming. I didn't either. <laughs> That's so how long have you how long have you lived here then? Um, for four years that I've lived like, yeah. So I came in July of 2017, and I really thought that I would only be here a month, but I really didn't want to go home. So I just kept praying and praying and kept staying. That's it. So. So to give you guys, uh, or the people that have downloaded the Back to Jerusalem podcast, just a little bit of introduction. You know, a few years ago, we were working together with a couple that volunteered from a church. I spoke at a church one time, and um, there were there was a, a, a guy that was motivated to come and join us on a mission trip. I told him to come along. He came. He fell in love with the place, and then he brought his wife and his family to Kurdistan to live here and serve together with Back to Jerusalem. And as they were here, they came up with this idea of instead of producing our prayer bears in a factory in China, instead we would make them by hand with women that had been persecuted, that were fleeing ISIS, that were living in refugee camps, that could not get a job. Um, we that we could target them instead and have them hand make the Back to Jerusalem prayer bears instead of making them in a factory, kind of a little small cottage industry that would both benefit us at Back to Jerusalem because we already have the prayer bears, right? So we wanted people to have something that reminded the children, reminded the family to pray for the persecuted church. But this would be a double blessing in the way that we could give jobs to women that were maybe coming out of a trafficking situation, a situation where maybe they lost their family due to the ISIS invasion, or maybe they lost their home or where they grew up, access to their, their, their uh, cultural home as well, like moving from Syria or, or Sinjar Mountain into Kurdistan. Um, so we wanted to be able to have that double blessing of giving them a job. And so that couple got this program started. We were super excited, but then they, they, they had to leave. The, the wife was pregnant, was giving birth to, to their second child, I believe. Yeah. She just gave birth to her third child. Did you see that? Yes. 
She's yeah. so sweet. Yes, I haven't, I haven't seen them obviously in real life, but on Facebook for sure. Yeah, I, so I went to their house right after she gave birth, like right after. Oh, wow. She gave birth to their third child in a swimming pool in their living room. Like no anesthesia, like nothing. Like I, if I was giving birth, I, I wouldn't want to be awake. Like, can you put me out? Like, can I do this in my sleep? Yeah. Well, <laughs> she's awesome. She, Super brave. She's a warrior. She's yeah, got to be a sure. tough woman. Yeah. And then her husband was taking photos. I'm like, I, I was like, okay, this is like on a new level of toughness. You guys are like posing for social media photos as you're delivering a baby in your living room in a pool. Um, so it was definitely a new level, but they were here and they went back to the US to give birth to their second child and um, They're like, okay, who are we going to have to run this program? And that's when they came in contact with you. Yeah um, It is actually I was staying with them Here in Erbil and they were getting ready to go and they weren't sure if they were going to be coming back or not coming back And so I took over it for them until they came back if they came back and indefinitely otherwise so yeah can you tell us just a little bit like for those those listeners that have never heard anything about this program can you introduce like what do you do who do you do it with like what is the what is the process and what it's a, what's it for okay so um there's two sort of camp well one was a camp and now it's sort of just a community and then there's basically two communities of where we have families, most of them are Syrian refugees, and it's mostly, well, it is the ladies of the families. Um, their husbands go and get the materials for the bears, and they get like the yarn and the stuffing, the cotton stuff that goes inside, and they just crochet the bears. I, I love your technical terms. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> the, the stuffing, the stuff yeah, that goes inside. Soft stuff. Yeah. yeah, so they go and they get the things, and they make, they just crochet the bears, and then we purchase some from them and ship them to whichever country you guys want them in. So when they are making the, the bears, can you kind of just describe like, do they go into a factory? Are they, you know, or do they go to a location where they're all in a circle and, you know, crocheting together and somebody's standing over them with a whip, like go faster? <laughs> no, so it's their families mostly. So they're sitting in their living room crocheting bears. like. They're just, they sit on the floor, as everybody does here, and they just make their bears. A lot of times when we, because we'll go and visit, and they're just sitting and crocheting, and we just sit and talk, and they have their little bear heads all over, and they, I don't know how exactly, but they have, like, they make the heads, and they make the bodies, and then they stick them together, so they have, like, a pile of bear heads and a pile of bear bodies, and then they <laughs> join them, yeah. yeah. That's one of the things that we love about the program because we know that you know these women are oftentimes waiting a lot. Anybody that's been here finds that they're waiting all the time, right? You're, you, we had to go get a COVID test. The line was like over 100 people deep. So you're waiting for the COVID test. You're waiting to get in to, to get the testing done. Once you get in there, you're waiting in another line. They put you on another line. That's just for the COVID test. Yesterday we did handing out of food. People had to get in a line. So there's like a lot of lines all over Kurdistan. People waiting for one thing or another, waiting for the bus, waiting to get to work, waiting to get a check, waiting to, uh, you know, get gas. So there's a lot of waiting where women can, if they have these things in a handbag, basically they can pull them out anywhere while they're doing the waiting and actually make their waiting time productive. They can do that. Um, and there's a lot of, especially for women here, we're just waiting at home, <laughs> waiting for their kids to come back from school or their husbands to come back from wherever their husbands might be. And there's a lot, especially in the camps, and especially for 
like people from outside of Iraq, it's harder for Syrians to find jobs. It's harder for them to be employed. It's harder for them to find something to do with their time. So there's a lot of boredom, a lot of hopelessness, because there's nothing for them to really do. But in this, this little small bit, they get to have something. They get to have a purpose, and it gets to help their family, and it gets to be a really productive thing to do with their time when otherwise they're just sitting and thinking about how they miss their life. But now they get to be something helpful. So. Yeah. It's one of the things that we really like because actually many of the women, I mean, crocheting can be taught quite easily. And it's something that anybody could do. So you don't need to be a college graduate. You don't need to be a high school graduate. These can be women that are mothers, full-time mothers, while their kids are taking a nap. And yeah, they are full-time mothers, right? Yeah, for sure. That's what they would be doing otherwise. Or they're widows or like they're at home full-time. And the skill level, that hasn't been a ton of education, especially like where most of them are from, there's just not a lot of opportunity. They're from kind of remote places. So it's not a super skilled level, but it is a skill that they can do and it is a skill that they can pass on and it's a skill that they have developed and you, like, I've seen it develop over the whole time. Yeah. yeah. So once they make the bear, what happens then? Um, well, then I buy them and send them to wherever. Yeah, so you send them, we send them to America, Canada, UK, uh, Europe. Mm-hmm. So those bears basically go around the world. And for those of you that have never seen the Back to Jerusalem prayer bear, if you have children, this is something that can be life-changing. And I'm, and I'm not trying to be overdramatic. I'm not saying that, oh, this will, this will change your life because we make it. I really do believe that this can impact a child's trajectory that will change the course of their life. And this is why. These bears can be a constant reminder for children to pray for the persecuted church. This plants a seed in the minds of your child to know that there is a persecuted church out there. And not just like one time, two times when they're three years old and they forget about it by the time they're seven years old. I'm talking about something that once that seed is planted, that looking at this bear triggers a response, triggers a thought about praying for the persecuted church. Even if they don't actively pray, that feeling of praying or when they did pray for the persecuted church, when they see these prayer bears, can impact their life. So as they continue to look at these prayer bears, as they get older, they are continually reminded to pray for the persecuted church. And these prayer bears go right along with a Back to Jerusalem children's books. And those children's books are written for the ages between, if you got a two-year-old all the way up to like 10 years old. If you can think of Winnie the Pooh and Christopher Robin, that's basically what we have with the Back to Jerusalem children's books, this adventure in Fufu's forest, because Fufu and his friends, these are fictional characters that they tell real stories from the field. So all of the stories that are told in these books are real stories that take place all over the world. We have stories from Tibet and China and India and Saudi Arabia, stories that impact children's life, telling them about stories that really happened by people that really exist. And what is great about that is oftentimes I think that we read the Bible and we have an understanding that the God of miracles that we tell children's stories from the Bible about, that God of miracles, you know, worked thousands of years ago. He was able to deliver Daniel from the lion's den 
several thousand years ago. He was able to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego several thousand years ago. He was able to heal the lepers 2,000 years ago. But that doesn't really happen today, right? These stories say otherwise, that the God of the Bible is still alive today. The God of, that was with his people and the people saw miracles is still the God today that is with his followers, with his children, and they are still seeing miracles today. I believe that there are a lot of missionaries that are serving on the field, missionaries like Barbara, that are heroes, that provide an amazing example for our children. And that's what the books talk about. And along with these books are the Fufu Bear. Now, have you ever seen the Back to Jerusalem children's books before? Because I know that we didn't bring any of those books here. I think I, think I might have seen one once before Paige and Caleb left, but I, I didn't read them, and I didn't know that that was what they were about. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that it was going to grow into such a thing, honestly. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know that that was what it's about. But that's amazing that it's stories from in real life because there is a lot 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 that happens now yeah. not and it seems to me I don't know about everywhere else but it seems to me especially here in the Middle East like I see a lot of things that I remember reading in the Bible before I came here that is like literal truth of it here like versus like they'll know us by their love by our love and then like we'll go visit a family and we're like we know that you're right we know that your way is right because we see how you love like they're literal physical truths that mm -hmm. I didn't know existed and that healings are not unusual here. Like, miraculous things do happen regularly. But I didn't know that that's what those books were about. So that's awesome. Yeah, I wanted to share with you just because, I mean, you're on the practical side, right? You, you inherited this project. You had the heart to keep the project going on. And we don't often write a lot of things, you know, by email or whatever. We would rather, you know, talk about, especially things of this nature, with people that are living in the region that you are we would rather share about them face to face and you and I just haven't had a, a chance to sit down face to face. So, um, it's understandable that you've never heard the book. So that's, it, but you still carried out the practical side of making those bears. Now today you shared some amazing stories about the impact of the women that you're working together with. I would love for you to share some of those stories. Yeah, that is why like, my heart is to do that, even though I didn't understand really what was happening on, the, on you guys' side. I know what's happening with the families that are making it, so I wanted to make sure that there was a way still provided. Because one of our families, like they used the, prayer, the money from the bears to send their daughter to college. She wouldn't have been able to go. Sorry. Anyway, it's just amazing. And... Yeah, it was worth, even if that was it, it was worth continuing it for that purpose. But then this other group of families that we have, we get to visit a lot because they live a lot closer to us. And so we get to bring food and we get to bring things and just be in communion with them and communication and in fellowship and in relationship. And we've seen all of those families choose Christ at some point. And then we get to walk in some, not as much discipleship as we'd like, but in lots of discipleship. And so it's just, it's an amazing tool, even, I don't know, but even not knowing what happened to them, once I send them to wherever I'm sending them, it's so worth having, just because the impact that it has on those ladies. And even, like, you were talking about, it'll bless the kids when they see it and they remember to pray, but the ladies' names are on the bears, too. And if in their remembering to pray, they get to pray for these ladies, like, that's eternal impact, because prayer does change things, and it changes everybody's eternity, so... 
Yeah, that's one of the powerful things I think that makes this personal, right? Is that when you get one of these bears and you around the bears have this little tag and you open up the tag and there's the name of the lady who made it. And it's not just a name, like her hands were on that. Right. That bear was in her home. And she sat in front of the TV or in front of her kids or in front of dinner and she made that Mm -hmm. and she was concentrating on making money. But that came from her home. And then you just said that some of them have come to Christ. Mm-hmm. How many? Um, so I didn't really count. But I'll, I know that like our main connection in this one group, the, our contact, and he's a translator for, for our other things that we do too. Like his whole family, um, so our like five different families, and they're like the main ones that do this. And so all of them, and I can sit and make a list, but his parents, his three aunts, his wife, her, two of her sisters, his two of his brothers, and then their kids. I don't really know how many that is. but <laughs> like, I was counting, but then I had to take off my shoes yeah, and sorry. use my right, toes. For sure. Yeah, so like all of the families, because they're our closest connection and they're the ones we get to spend the most time with. And then those conversations come up and they're curious and they're open and so we get to share and it's this is a door into that and so then they will also continue to share like this guy works with other organizations too and he has like so many connections that's just more and more and more open doors and more multiplication so yeah so the those that got saved uh, and those that have not how many would you say like of the women that make the bears what's the percentage of them that are now christian well, in the like in this one group, all of them, and the other. So one hundred percent in yeah. one group. Yeah, in one are are they village. born Christian or did they no, they became Christian yeah, yeah. from Yazidi or Muslim? Muslim. So Muslim. Wow. So that's a hundred percent conversion rate in one family. Yeah, in one like yeah, so five families that are like one. Yeah. But yeah, in this one sort of village, the other ones, not as much, but. <laughs> Like, because we don't get to visit them. They're like two and a half hours from us. And yeah. we just have connection with this one family that we get to share a lot with and have a lot of good conversation, but they haven't actually chosen Christ yet. But there's still lots of seeds sown, and it's through this. So the, the one that you just talked about, like when they got saved, it's like mom, dad, uncle, aunt, children. Like you're, you're naming like a baseball team full of people. Yeah. So it's not just like one person, one lady getting saved. This is impacting the entire family. Right, yeah, and because they're very close, right? There's a lot of connection, and at first, like, at first, when just one person comes to the Lord, they have to be super quiet about it because they don't want to cause the trouble, but then, like, another and another, and then it's a network, and then it's like, like, everybody. It's just like, yeah, me too, me too, me too. (laughs) So, yeah. Do you feel, I I just, I want to know if it's just my imagination, do you feel that this area feels more open for the gospel than other areas, or is it harder for the gospel than other areas? Um, I think it depends on like the groups that you're speaking to. I think there are like parts of the area that are really hard, and that hard doesn't mean impossible, but that are more difficult. And then there's parts where they are so very open. And I think probably like the more affluent ones here who aren't really the refugees aren't affected necessarily by the things. Now, everybody's affected by a lot of trauma here, but like the refugees come in that are broken and they've lost everything and they don't really have an anchor and they don't really have much of a hope. 
are very hungry for light and hope and peace. And then other people who are like, yeah, we're fine. I'm like I have my Range Rover and I'm good. <laughs> like I don't, my God's fine, you yeah. know? Then they're a little bit more challenging to reach, but we get to work with people who are in dark and are tired of dark. So we get to bring light and they want it. So it hasn't been nearly as hard as I imagined anyway. So. When I came here, uh, been working here since 2014, one of the things that I noticed is that Islam seemed like a shackle on the people. And they were, all, and even though what ISIS did was evil and nobody would pray for it to happen, that which the enemy wanted to use for destroying this area in some ways became an open door for them to toss that shackle off. Yes. So, you know, the people here, they never had a choice. From the time that they were born, they were forced into Islam. You're born into Islam, you're a Muslim. End of story. Yeah. And, like, one of the families who now actually does know the Lord, like, when early visits, he was like, I wish I could be a Christian, but I can't. And I'm like, well, why not? And he was like, well, I was born a Muslim. And I'm like, yeah, but you can be born again. And he was like, no, I'm a Muslim. My dad's a Muslim. That's who we are. Like, it's, like... I can't ever be Kurdish because I, I was born in America. That's the same kind of mindset that they have. They don't know that it's an option because this is this is who I am. That is who you are. Good that you get to be that, but I'm stuck here. So, but just getting to know, like you get to choose. You get to have another birth. It is an, you. You can choose, and that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, that's hard for a person like you coming from America where we do have freedom of choice. We understand from a very early age that you choose certain things. You choose whether you want to be a doctor or a nurse or a truck driver. You choose whether you want to be agnostic or a Christian or a Buddhist. You choose whether you want chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream. Um, those things are for your choice. But in so many countries and cultures, it's something that we're not really that familiar with is that your parents choose who you marry. Your country chooses your religion. Your school system chooses what you will be as a professional. Uh, your family chooses whether you will ever be wealthy or not. Like you can't be, you can't be born into poverty and just you know try to become rich. And you can't be born rich and and then somehow end up in poverty unless your country's invaded. But one of the things that I. I, I found interesting here is that so many Muslims chose to stop representing Islam. Women stopped wearing covering on their heads. Um, they stopped making these, you know, prayer announcements throughout the city, you know, every day. I mean, there's still places that do it. There's still conservative places that, that hold on to those. But I think many of those might come from what you were talking about, people that already benefit from the system. Those that are being oppressed, which is 90% of the people, they don't want to speak um, uh, Arabic anymore. It's not their right. mother tongue. Yes. Uh, and they didn't choose to do it for business. They, they were forced to do it by the government. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen, in some cases, violent reactions where, you know, Arabs have been stopped at Kurdish checkpoints and beaten and their, all their luggage thrown out onto the ground saying, you know, get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. Um, it's... Uh, it's, it's really sad, but it also, I think, represents an opportunity that this is the time, really, to show people the truth while the, the door is open. Do you yeah. feel like there's an open door? I do feel like there's a lot of open door here. A lot, lot. And even, especially, like, in this region, because originally it wasn't Islam, but as 
I don't want to say Arab, but like as they are Arabized, and yes. then Islam is like this is this is who you serve now. Yep. Period. A lot of um, Kurdish people weren't originally Muslim. They were Yazidi, or there were other backgrounds. It was a lot more diverse, and now there really is only Islam. And I don't mean any disrespect to it at all, but through the history that has strongly influenced, and a lot of people. They do resent it to a degree, and a lot of like if I speak, I'm trying to learn Kurdish and Arabic, and if I say Arabic things to Kurdish people, they're like, "No, that's Arabic." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, yeah, all right, I'm sorry." <laughs> or like, yeah, they don't really want that oppression and that forced system so much. Yeah. Well, at least they know, yeah. right? Because I I was in Sudan um, two months ago, and when I was in Sudan. Uh, I had an archaeologist that was traveling with me. He was Sudanese. And um, uh, we were talking about English in the school. And he said, yeah, you know, children in Sudan, now we're starting to teach them English very early on. But he said, I don't know if it's such a good idea. I think it's good that you speak English because he spoke very good English. Uh, but he said, the problem with speaking English at an early age for children is that they will lose their mother language. I'm like, dude, you're Sudanese. You know that's not on the Arab Peninsula, right? Like, Arabic is not your mother language. Um, Islam is not your uh, your religion. Like, if we go back in time, ethnic, ethnic religion. Yeah. Um, they Sudan did accept Christ, not as a force or an army invasion. It was just a, a conversion that took place from revivals that were sweeping through the nation. And then the jihad broke out. And when the jihad from Saudi Arabia basically spread across the Arab Peninsula, down into Africa, even over to Europe, taking over Spain and Portugal, it also went eastward as it went westward. And it came into Iraq. It went into uh, Iran, took over those areas. So these people were taken by force. They're, they don't know this history because that history has been erased. So they have this this whole history that shows that this is not your history. This is not your background. This is not your language. This is not your religion. You were forced into this. And so I think there are some people, and I'm so happy to hear about this, you know, this idea of someone saying to you, I can't become a Christian because I was born a Muslim and I'm always going to be a Muslim. What a hopeless feeling. And for them to be given hope that says, no, guess what? I got a surprise. Yeah. You can make a choice. Yeah, I don't really know what else to say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like just the opportunity to speak into that and to have it be heard, to have them be able to even receive that because there is nothing really that supports a lot of individual choice. Like this is who you're going to be. They don't really even like the school systems from what I understand. They, according to their score, tell them what job they're going to have and what they're going to major in when they go on to college, if they get to go on to college. Like it's assigned. Everything is assigned, it seems to me, to them here. And as you mentioned, like family relationships and marriages and things, there's a lot more choice now, but there's a lot of not choice too. And there's a lot of like, you can choose from this group of people <laughs> who are our cousins, you know? But yeah, just to be able to, for him to say, I wish I could, but I can't. No, you really, really can. And for him to be just, yay, you know? Yeah, it's a good opportunity, and it's amazing, and I'm grateful for it. Have you seen, have you personally seen or been involved or been in a relationship with anybody that has accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior and then been ostracized for the from the family or persecuted from the family, or have you just not been exposed to that? Um, 
yeah, pretty much everybody that we know that accepts Christ to a degree is ostracized. And one of the families that we're closest to, they're from Syria and chose Christ. And even before, like, just we had brought some clothes and there was a cross necklace. And so she was wearing this cross necklace and our neighbors were giving her a hard time. And then so she, that conversation, she was afraid to accept Christ because she didn't want all the persecution that's going to come with it. I'm like, but you didn't even accept him yet and you're persecuted. You might as well have the benefit of knowing like you're going to be forever in heaven. And, you know, if you're going to be persecuted anyway, just say yes. And she was like, yeah. So then she did and then her husband did and then all her kids did. And then they actually did end up having to move out of their area because her brothers found out because she's not very quiet about it. She's pretty outspoken. <laughs> so her brothers found out and were making some threats from Syria. And so she was afraid they would come and find her. So she moved out of that area where everybody knows her into a less known. And then one of our translators is a Muslim background believer and his family can't know, even though he goes and he prays with them. And his mom does sort of know, but it, like, he can't be made known like his dad can't find out officially and his mom can't really know but like they see the difference obviously but yeah almost anybody that makes the choice there's a high price here for that choice so as kind of we wrap up i want to ask you um do the people that make the bears know why they're making the bears um they know that they're making them to be sent to the states to go with the kids books that was the part of the story I knew, and that's what I told <laughs> And they know that people are praying for them, that, they're, that that's why they sign the tags on the bears, so that people pray for them wherever they send them, and they know who made it. That's probably all they know about it. We've been so, so blessed by receiving those bears. As we distribute those into churches that we speak at, so many people are, are moved. Um, usually we can have the bears like sitting out on a table, and when people walk by, they'll think, oh, those are cute, you know, and then they'll go into the service. But at the moment we share, this is what that bear means. This is where that bear came from, and this is who made those bears. People will get up, especially if I say, we don't have enough for everybody here, but, you know, first come, first serve. Before I'm even done, yeah. people are, like, walking out the back door trying to come back and get it and trying to get one of those bears. Yeah. So they have, they have really made an impact on so many people around the world. Today you got to meet people from the U.K., from from Canada, from the U.S., from Poland that have been impacted by those bears and want to share those bears with their churches. Yeah. So hopefully that gives you an idea that, you know, these are not just random yeah. things that you're making and they're going to people that are not appreciative. Or Sometimes missionaries are known for making junk and, like, trying to pawn it off on other people for donations, and people are like, I'll give you a donation just to keep your junk. When people get these bears, I think that they really feel like this is something special. This is something precious. This is not, you know, some beaded necklace that was made on a, a beach somewhere in Africa. This was. This is something that a, a person put their heart and soul into, and it has meaning. If we sold those at Walmart, I think that they would still be like a wanted item on the market because you guys do such good work. And you do the, I, I'm assuming you do the quality control on them. Yeah, I mean, I watch them and try to make sure that they're not all crazy and whatever. And when there is, like there had been, especially like in the beginning, some trouble with getting them quite right. And like their faces kind of look like they maybe had a stroke or something. <laughs> so then like, yeah, we just took some of the ladies who were better at it and had them go train some of the ladies who weren't doing so well. And now I think it's a lot better. I think it's a lot better. But yeah, you guys well, I love them. I mean, they look they look really, really good. And uh, yeah, none of them look 
yeah, deformed. <laughs> they look nice and fluffy, round, exactly like Fufu in the book. I mean, it's a, it's, it is like a, like a little bit like this homemade. Like you, you know that each bear is special. Each bear is individual. Like there's no two bears alike. And I think that there, that, and whenever we go out. It, because we still do have some leftover that we made in factories inside of China. Whenever we go out, it's always the handmade ones that are taken first before the ones that... I was just at a church in Montana last month, and I spoke at the church, and I had both the factory-produced bears from China and the handmade bears from Iraq. The handmade bears all gone, and we're still, you know, giving people the, the ones from the factories. And, and to be honest, when people come back and they see that the ones from the factories are there, they're like, Oh, do you not have any of the other ones that we saw earlier? And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I'm really glad. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So I want to thank you. And uh, for those of you that are listening to this podcast, please continue to pray for Barbara and the women that she works together with. I'm just so blessed to know that there have been families that have come to Christ that are working with us on this project. And when you look at the bears, if you have the bears in your home, um, and when you read the stories from Fufu's Forest, remember Barbara, remember the work that she's doing and the, the, the service that God has called her to do that she's been here for a couple years now doing. Thank you so much for joining us, Barbara. It's been such a pleasure talking together with you. My pleasure, too. Thank you so, so much. Yeah. And thank you for downloading this Back to Jerusalem podcast. Again, I'm Eugene Bakker, host for this time, coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Iraq. God bless you.